How shocking in American history is the right-wing U.S. Supreme Court taking away our rights? Well, it's not unique to Trump. Stay tuned. I'm Bert Cohen, and we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Today on Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest Steve Fraser writes, Today's Supreme Court is more than Donald Trump's creation. Uh, It would be somehow reassuring to believe this court is a bunch of rogues, if only that were true. In his new essay, Fraser writes, Historically speaking, Trump's Supremes are anything but an extreme aberration. In fact, they're eerily closer to the norm of American history. Well, we've got to learn American history. Those of us who grew up in mid-20th century America, if we notice such things at all, saw the Supreme Court of Earl Warren, which shored up and expanded rights as kind of a standard. We came to expect this of the court, that it was there to protect citizens from the harmful excesses of unregulated capitalism. Well, as it turns out, that liberal court was the exception, not the rule. Drat. Sadly, there's a lot of ugly precedent for the Supreme Court protecting the rights of the minority of wealth and power against the rights of the powerless majority. One might logically expect the highest court in the land to be there as a check on the abuse of power, and to protect and defend democracy. But, as the history of the court shows, that is not the case. Steve Fraser's essay is titled, The Trump Supreme Court is Nothing New, A History of the Tyranny of the Supremes. Steve Fraser, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Steve Fraser is a historian, writer, and editor. He's the author of the just-published Mongrel Firebugs and Men of Property, Capitalism and Class Conflict in American History. His previous books include Class Matters, The Age of Acquiescence, and The Limousine Liberal. As I say, his most recent book is Mongrel Firebugs. Co-founder and co-editor of the American Empire Project, he writes regularly for Tom Dispatch and has written for the L.A. Times, the New York Times, and The Nation. Well, again, thanks. While we'd like to think that the court as one of the three branches of government set up by our brilliant founders, that we'd like to think that it's there to be a check on the other two, the executive and the legislative. But you assert that from the beginning, the Supreme Court was conceived as a bulwark against excessive democracy. I'll repeat that, set up as a a bulwark against excessive democracy. That That assessment is a surprise to many. Please explain. Yes, actually, that assessment is more extreme. My assessment is more extreme than you formulated it. 
What I would argue is that the Constitution itself, not only the Supreme Court that created it, uh, was designed uh, to to um, restrain what was thought of by elites in, in colonial or post-revolutionary America as a democratic excess, and that everything about the Constitution, the occasion for its meeting, its deliberations, were all aimed at quelling uh, excess local democracy, which had spread throughout the states. They weren't quite states yet in the, during the Articles of Confederation. Right. You know, the Constitutional Convention was held in secret. It was held in a broiling hot July, uh, and every door and window of Independence Hall was closed. The, the delegates, yes, because they wanted these deliberations to be held in secret because they hadn't been sent there to write a new constitution. They had actually been sent there to amend the Articles of Confederation. And indeed, there was enormous opposition to the document that they produced, which nearly failed passage in many of the states. And the reason for that has to do with both the court and the constitution. During the period following the revolution between 1783 and the meetings in Philadelphia in 1787, the country was in an uproar. There were local insurrections and democratic movements in many of the states. Uh, uh, the most famous is Shays' Rebellion, which uh, enlisted yes. the support of a large population of farmers in western Massachusetts. Many of these, these uprisings and democratic movements, some of which succeeded in taking over state legislatures. By takeover, wow. I mean they were democratically elected. Uh, happened in places like Connecticut, in Virginia. In fact, the one in Virginia happened right as the delegates were leaving uh, Philadelphia. Yeah. There, were, there were the regulators in North Carolina. There were uh, uprisings in almost every state. And these were about excessive taxation, right. about heavy debts that these farmers and others could no longer afford, about the foreclosures on farms, um, about currency speculators who were buying up dirt cheap, uh, the, the cheap as a continental, you know, the continental currency issued during the war so that they could speculate on a government that would then redeem those currencies at face value. Uh, land speculators who were buying up uh, available good land that uh, ordinary people were after. Uh, merchants and bankers who held mortgages and loans to farmers. So these local democratic movements, which were not only insurrections like Shays, although there were several such insurrections, but many of them were just uh, elected governments in these local states, which then canceled debts or declared moratoriums on debts, canceled taxes, stopped evictions, stopped foreclosures. In other words, asserted the rights of the democratic majority over the rights of property of the minority. Mm. And this terribly worried the people who called the Constitutional Convention and who deliberated in Philadelphia. It was a question of liberty and local democracy versus property. And they thought of these people, these are quotes, thought of these people who were involved in these uprisings as, as expressing the insolence of the lower orders. During Shays' Rebellion, for example, they referred to these uh, insurrectionary farmers as brutes who lived in styes. Um, what they were concerned about was protecting the sanctity of private property mm -hmm. uh, from the Democratic majority. I'll, I, I know you want to stop me, so I'll stop. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I was just, uh, my sense is <clears throat> that the, the, the war of independence was, was 
uh, paid for. There were there were a lot of uh, they borrowed money from the creditors, and the question was, who pays? Uh, tell tell me if I'm wrong. Who who pays them back? Do they take a hit? Now, in fact, a lot of the a lot of the continentals and the state or colonial currencies that were issued to finance the war during those war years right. were bought up by local people. Uh, right. Farmers and, and and storekeepers and so on, right. but the value of those currencies depreciated dr- drastically because no one knew who was going to win the war yeah. uh, and whether there'd be any government that would redeem those uh, those currencies. So what you can get is speculators, uh, and some of them are among the mercantile elite of colonial America, buying up these pieces of paper, hoping that. A more powerful government after the Revolutionary War will redeem these currencies at their face value, at enormous profit to these currency speculators. And that's precisely what happens because the Constitution guarantees the honoring of the public debt and provides a way for the government to finance that debt by giving it the power, this new government, this new federal government, the power to levy taxes. So that, that's, that's one of the things that's going on. The other thing the Constitution enshrines, Ben Franklin called this the soul of the Constitution. It's, in, it's Section 10, Article 1. It says that no state can impair the obligations of contracts. And, and Franklin thought of that as so essential because of what was going on in the country. It also gave the national government the power to issue a national currency and prohibited any state from issuing paper money. It also, and this is language from the Constitution, gave the national government the power to suppress insurrections. That's a quote. And and what that meant was that these insurrections could not, for example, there's something called the Whiskey Rebellion, which yes. follows the adoption of the Constitution in the early yeah. 1790s. And when, when these Pennsylvania farmers rebel against the whiskey tax, uh, which in part is designed to help redeem the national debt, in other words, provide a source of revenue uh, to pay off your creditors, um, uh, Washington sends an army led by Alexander Hamilton yeah. to put down uh, the, 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 this insurrection in Pennsylvania. And in many ways, the Constitution uh, uh, was designed to stop this kind of thing, including the creating of a Supreme Court. In uh-huh. fact, uh, the, the, the Supreme Court was thought of some some proponents of the of the uh, uh, Supreme Court wanted it to be. That's why they made it a life term in office, so that it would not be subject to democratic sentiment. No elected judges. Um, it, 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 it's, re- it's the reason we have a six-year Senate term to insulate mm. politicians who are going to be the elite of, of that period uh, from constant having to war. You know, in, in pre-constitutional America, many of these legislators were elected for one year. They had to run again a year later. Ooh. They didn't, and that 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 improved the democratic influence. Uh-huh. On lawmakers, so they they didn't want that. They 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 established very large con- congressional districts in the Constitution, so that to dilute uh, the influence of democratic up- uprisings. Hamilton actually proposed, although it wasn't adopted as we know, a lifetime executive. He wanted a president yeah. to serve for life. Um, and then, of course, there's the indirect election of senators, which was another way. In other words, people weren't going to elect senators. State legislatures were going to elect senators. And that was true yes. until the adoption of the 16th Amendment in 1913. So these were all ways 
to kind of uh, insulate the country against this new this new national uh, uh, state against excessive what they call passionate majorities, what Madison called right. passionate majorities or factitious majorities, uh, or which some people less elegant called the mobocracy. Um, and, and so the, and the federal judiciary was part of that. In fact, Hamilton wanted. Uh, or Madison actually wanted to have the judiciary have the have veto power over all legislation, and that didn't go anywhere. But um, but that's the kind of thinking that was going on, and that's why I make the case that when you look at the Supreme Court in its origins, you have to see it as a piece of this larger design to 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 not. It, this was not tyrannical. There are still democratic elections. There are representatives of the people, but it was a way of diluting the power of local um, democratic movements, uh, which were disturbing the the property interests of the country. And I, I still have a hard time calling it the American Revolution. It was a war of independence, for sure. No question about that. But that I, my sense is, and tell me if I'm wrong, that it wasn't clear what this government would be. Would it, who it would serve, what interests it would serve? Would it serve oh, the, the wealthy yeah. elite, or would it serve the average, you know, yeoman farmer? Uh, and it wasn't clear at all. And it does seem that's, that, exa- that's exactly right. And a lot of the social tensions that surfaced after the revolution were present before the revolution sure. that is social tensions between the elite and more ordinary working people and farmers and so on there were many outbursts uh, there were there was a lot of worries of, yeah. uh, of men, among the elites about the excessive insurrectionary nature of like for instance the the tea party which is led by uh, ex-slaves and some native americans and local uh, sailors and so on they didn't like that it was too it was too militant it was too um, excessive and these surface a bit during the war and the the revolution is not really a social revolution right. it's a war of independence as exactly, you put it yes. and it, it establishes uh, the ability for america to emerge as a commercial republic and become part of this growing transatlantic commercial world uh, these are people and of course uh, the revolution does nothing about slavery so yeah. the the, uh, 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 the first <laughs> Uh, thing one would point to to indicate that this was a true social revolution would have been some challenge to slavery. And of course, there is no such challenge to slavery. And in fact, thousands of slaves uh, use the war as an opportunity to flee to British lines and get their freedom, which the British had, had, had uh, promised them. Indeed. And, and as, as one professor I had many, many, many years ago uh, said uh, that there was a revolution brewing here and then the elite on this side of the Atlantic uh, saw that they could get a greater share of the loot <laughs> by joining in this and and kind of using the popular sentiment to uh, take some power to themselves. Yeah, and, I think it's that, and also that they, they their own commercial interests were being inhibited sure. by the empire, by the British, yeah. uh, so they really wanted independence uh, in order to pursue their own uh, their own commercial interests, um, and even you know, I mean, that's what Hamilton saw. He saw America as becoming a second uh, uh, England, uh, meaning a, a wealthy, prosperous, mm-hmm. 
country um, uh, based on uh, trade and commerce and, and even even infant industry, which was part of Hamilton's plan. So we have a court that serves those interests, apparently. We, you know, a yes, lot, and a it lot was of perceived that way that it was it was it was it was immune to democratic yeah. influence. Oh God, I don't think a lot of people knew that people. You know, since the overturning of Roe versus Wade and the trend to the far right taking away people's rights, a lot of people are surprised that this is happening. But there is a heck of a lot of precedence for a court yeah. that, that serves uh, the interests. Yes, that's, that, that, that's right. For, and right from the beginning. For, for, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. I kind of like democracy. I really do. Our guest today <laughs> is Steve Fraser, historian, writer, and editor, talking about an essay he wrote on Tom Dispatch called The Trump Supreme Court is Nothing New, A History of the Tyranny of the Supremes. Well, tell us about Marbury versus Madison a little bit and the power of the federal courts to declare legislative and executive acts unconstitutional. That that yeah. This this is the principle of judicial review, right. and um, and it's a it's an enormous power. It can it can become what was described has been described very recently, and a hundred years ago was described as judge made law. That instead of legislatures making law, the judges make it. Right. This right this principle of judicial review was not in the Constitution, although it was implicit uh-huh. in Hamilton and Madison's thinking. The case that makes it an actual rule of the court is a case called Madison versus Marbury, right. uh, in which uh, Justice Marshall is presiding over the Supreme Court, and it, and it establishes the right of the Supreme Court to declare laws, federal laws, unconstitutional. And this is this is an enormously important thing because the court will then begin, not so much immediately, begin after a while, especially in the late 19th and through the 20th century, to use that power of judicial review to overturn uh, many uh, laws. And we're, we're witnessing this, obviously, today, both laws and, as you put it, executive actions uh, by, by the president. Oof, that's tough stuff. And we are seeing uh, that power of judicial review happening right now. Today, the Supreme Court is recognized as being immensely powerful, unelected, nine people, happens to be nine, doesn't have to be nine. But in the, in the early days, as you say, at first, the Supreme Court services weren't needed as a guardian of vested interest, and its presence was muted indeed. Well, what was their status between 1803 and 1857? In what way was it muted and not needed? Yeah, well, to some degree, of course, the most important way, essential way in which it was needed was to defend the interests of the slave South. Um, it It wasn't so widely needed in the North because this was the period in American history when there's a far, fairly wide distribution of property. It's the, it's the era of the freeholder. Remember, with the, with the end of the British Empire, there are literally billions of acres available. They're available because indigenous people are being driven off yeah. them, exterminated, and so on. They're available 
um, uh, for settlement by ordinary people. And to some very large degree, that actually happens. Even ex-indentured servants who, from the colonial days, have their first shot at being independent, mm-hmm. you know, self-reliant, um, uh, self-sufficient farmers. And so the, the, you might describe antebellum Northern America as a society with a broad distribution, relatively speaking, of property and of uh, self-reliant independence. So the court doesn't have a lot to do to defend uh, the power of wealthy interests in the North, but it does indeed face that challenge in the South because the South is under increasing, although it's very powerful in the national government, the South uh, in fact controls many uh, parts of the federal government. Nonetheless, it's being challenged by an anti-slavery movement in the North, by abolitionists, by and, and so on. And so the court, in probably what is its most infamous, egregious decision, decides in 1857 in a case called the Dred Scott case that three critical things, that no black person, free or not free, slave or not, can be a citizen of the United States. It decides that any slave, man or woman, who goes into, happens to enter free, uh, free parts of the country in the North, mm-hmm. where slavery is illegal, nonetheless remains the property of his owner in the South, and it is the obligation of the Constitution to defend that property right and return the slave to his master. And essentially, um, what the, um, what the court does in Dred Scott is to overturn the essential compromise that had, with great strain, kept the country together. That's the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which had said slavery below a certain latitude was legal, above it was not legal. That is, Missouri would would come into the Union as a a slave state, and uh, Maine would come in as a free state. And that's the way that geographical line, that latitude, would forever uh, uh, establish what was free and what was not free. The Dred Scott decision says, no, the Missouri Compromise is unconstitutional. A slave is a slave no matter where. And it is the obligation of the United States government under the Constitution to protect that right to slave property, no matter where that slave is, as long as that territory comes under the jurisdiction of the United States government. So this is the really the end of the last attempt to stave off civil war. Um, you know, the abolitionists in the North are enraged by this decision. Yeah. It, it, uh, although he didn't need any encouragement, John Brown is enormously uh, affected by the decision, and it becomes... Uh, uh, a, a one of the key landmark moments leading to the Civil War. Lincoln will refer to it in his 1861 inaugural address. Um, and uh, so it, there the court plays a decisive role. And, and so this is, as you say, the Dred Scott decision was one of the most egregious decisions in the court's 250-year history. But you also say that ruling was in keeping with its basic orientation. That decision yes. itself is disturbing enough, but tell us about that context, please. Yeah, well, I mean, what I'm, what I'm arguing generally throughout the article, uh, with a lot more uh, uh, a reference to the uh, late 19th and 20th century, is that the court 
is set up to protect vested interests. Mm -hmm. After all, the laws of the land, which which protect the sanctity of private uh, private property and the sanctity of contract above all other rights, almost invites the justices uh, to take that position to protect property interests as opposed to the interests of a increasingly large democratic majority, which doesn't have property, especially with the industrialization of the country and and the, and the turning of most of. Uh, the population into into wage earners of one kind or another. Um, the court increasingly stands for, and will continue to stand for, with the exception of the Warren Court that you alluded to earlier, for the interests of property. So that, for example, um, the pro-business decisions of the Supreme Court have tripled between 1970 and the year 2000. Whoa. And and that does not even include things like Citizens United, which came later in 2010. Um, uh, so it, it, it once, you know, there's there's uh, there's often a a kind of lag time. You know, you have a you have a Warren court, and its justices serve for life. So the influence of that court may extend beyond uh, the actual period during sure. which uh, liberalism was triumphant in America. But then eventually. It gives way as you get a conservative presidency, a conservative Congress, a Republican Party hegemony. You get the appointment of William Rehnquist as Supreme Court Justice in 1986. And from that moment on, the court increasingly, its center of gravity, moves to the right, back to where it always was, and yeah. oriented to protecting property interests. Oh, fascinating. It's important to know about this stuff. And today... When we think about the political leanings of the Midwest, the center, the geographic center of the country, what we see in the Midwest is conservatism and real right-wing sentiments. In, a, in, in addition to not knowing about the ugly phase of the Supreme Court, the left-wing prairie populism that was strong in that region is an unfortunate gap in our historical knowledge. Yeah. Great Americans like Fighting Bob LaFollette one of my favorites, are virtually unknown. You point out that state legislatures, state legislatures were sympathetic and passed laws addressing their constituents' grievances. What was that movement? How did the Supreme Court deal with those state laws and thus that movement? Talk about uh, perhaps what the constituents' grievances were that the state uh, legislatures you know, actually uh, yeah. addressed. Well, I think when you look at the whole period following the Civil War, right up until the Great Depression of the 1930s, what you're uh, looking at is a series of sometimes simultaneous uprisings of various kinds, um, uh, movements of farmers, of workers, uh, even in the case of um, African Americans, what you get right after the Civil War is their enfranchisement, uh, the, uh, the, the enforcement of their civil rights, and right away the Supreme Court tries to undo that. Uh, there's a Civil Rights Act passed in, in the mid-1870s designed to an exact criminal and civil penalties if you violate the civil rights 
of a freedman, of an ex-slave, and the Supreme Court, the one I'm going to talk about of the late 19th century, declares that law unconstitutional. And then, of course, uh, as blacks become very powerful in the South, they occupy state legislatures, they're, they're congressmen, they're senators, they, run, they don't run, but they are involved in state legislatures. Um, what you get is this counter-movement, this counter-revolutionary mm. movement, which the court will uh, endorse in its most, its maybe second most famous decision to Dred Scott, Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, when it rules that segregation is uh, illegal, uh, that separate but equal facilities, public accommodations are legal. And one of the justices in that case actually says that white supremacy, and this is a quote, is in the nature of things, right. end quote. Um, so you have this this black movement, and also w one troubling aspect of this black uh, uh, civil rights uprising and, and presence in the country is the danger that it may ally with white, poor farmers, not only in the South as well as in the West. Um, and that's the movement you're talking about, prairie populism, uh, which... Uh, was designed to fight back against the power of railroads to set yes. uh, uh, exorbitant uh, extortionate rates against grain elevator operators to charge incredible uh, rates to store the grain uh, against all kinds of monopoly power, which were driving and uh, uh, driving farmers, uh, small farmers into bankruptcy. Foreclosures were rife. Great, there were great mass migrations out of uh, places like Texas as in the 1870s and 80s. And this produced a movement of farmers, originally a movement of farm, uh, a grain, what we call Grange movement, uh, who became very political and began electing uh, people to state legislatures. They elected uh, all governors, senators. Uh, uh, they controlled state legislatures and they began passing laws um, to uh, regulate the railroads, to regulate the grain elevator operators, to, to, to pass laws against usurious interest rates and so on. And, and, and initially, uh, the state courts in these places uh, uh, were uh, approved of these laws because we're coming out of the period that I referred to earlier, that antebellum period where widespread property distribution and the rights of small uh, small farmers and smallholders generally was respected mm. and their communal right to democratically uh, protect themselves against the predatory nature of big business and, and finance was respected. So what happens is these laws are passed and they're appealed and they're appealed by corporate attorneys, railroads, uh, railroad attorneys, for example, yeah. or steel and iron. And they're appealed. And they eventually, they make their way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court rules that these regulatory laws are unconstitutional. They're unconstitutional, they say, because, and this is the great irony, they violate the 14th Amendment, which protected the civil rights of freed of freed slaves, because they're inhibiting the right of these corporations um, uh, to conduct their business freely in a free market. In other words, the, the, the justices say, if you regulate them, you, you determine what they can charge and what they can't charge, or how big they can be or how, how not big they can be, you are not just regulating them, you're confiscating property. And that's against the Constitution. And so again and again, they rule these laws, these regulatory laws, to be unconstitutional. 
Um, uh, and, 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 and this is a very powerful blow against the populist, uh, movement. Um, and in fact, William Jennings Bryan, who becomes the Democratic Party candidate, but also supported by the Populist Party in 1896, um, for running for president, uh, uh, declares the court to be a judicial oligarchy. And he doesn't use that word casually. Oligarchy, for him, he wants to draw that connection between the power of big property and the, and the court itself. That, and, and in fact, there's a literal uh, way to interpret that. Many of these justices had earlier careers as lawyers right. uh, for the big railroads and steel and iron and other uh, uh, companies and, and, and big banks. Um, and, and in other words, for instance, there's a lawyer who represents the Chicago and Northern Railroad in one of these cases trying to strike down a regulatory law. And he says about this law, it's communism pure and simple. Um, and, and you have to, you know, so they use that um, to make their case that the law uh, should be struck down. And then, of course, you have both, you have this, this black reconstruction, you have this prairie populism, and then alongside it, countries undergoing this enormous transformation uh, by industrial capitalism. And you have uh, millions of workers, both native to the country and immigrant workers coming from abroad, working under the most uh, horrific conditions, abject poverty, um, uh, uh, brutal authoritarian uh, rule, indignant, endless hours, big threat to their health and well-being. Um, you know, the accident rate is astronomical. Oh, it's yeah. nothing like today in, in American industry uh, during this period. And so these same state legislatures uh, respond to this, this, this kind of horrors of early industrial capitalism in the same way. And they pass laws to regulate hours, establish maximum hours, or establish a minimum wage, or establish condition, safety conditions, or, or to protect a worker's health, or to abolish child labor, or to regulate the hours of women, and so on and so on and so forth. Or even to, for instance, workers are often paid in these in company industrial towns in script. Right. What does that mean? Yeah. They, they, the company issues this script, and then you, you, can only, you can only exchange that script in company stores at hugely inflated prices, or they delay endlessly in paying their workers, uh, and, and, uh, or they have laws that allow them to, to fire without cause, without explanation. Well, these state legislatures pass laws to make all of that illegal. Um, and, and then what you get is a series of decisions by the Supreme Court that begins in the late 1880s and continues right through the 1920s um, to uh, declare all of these laws, or most of them, uh, uh, unconstitutional, and that they are, they are violating, um, again, the, uh, the 14th Amendment, the, the, liberty of, the uh, liberty of contract. So what does that mean? Mm -hmm. It means... Some, it means some uh, a baker, uh, there's a famous case, uh, it's called the Lochner case. A, uh, New York State passes a law. It says the maximum hours a baker can work is 60. <laughs> Sounds ridiculous to us, but in those days, they were working 75 and 100 hours a week, and they were working in the cellars, in tenements, the flour was making them, endangering their lungs and so on. So New York State passes a law, this is in the mid-1880s, 
says the maximum can be 60 hours. The court overrules that. He says, well, the court says, well, why should there be any power to regulate these hours? These workers were free to contract with the owners of these bakeries to work for, uh, they agreed to do this, right. uh, to work 75 or 100 hours a week. If they didn't want to, they could just not, you know, they could leave, they could be unemployed. Uh, and they could, you know, it was, in other words, it's freedom of contract on both sides, as if the two parties were equal, the owner of the steel mill and the worker working at the, at the forge or the, or the owner of the sure. coal mine and the guy digging the coal had entered into, they were equals. And, and so the, 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 the state had no right to interfere with that liberty of contract as it was enshrined in the constitution. And it's on those grounds, of, uh, it's so absurd. There were, there were, of course, dissents from this, from these decisions. And, uh, one, uh, uh, dissenting judge, um, uh, described, um, this freedom of contract, this talk about liberty of contract. He said this. It's not even truthful or sincere. No such freedom of contract exists. Every judge knows it. Every other man knows it. It is the duty of judges informing their decision to take judicial notice of what everybody knows, which is that, of course, there's, there's the most gross inequality sure. between the worker and the owner of capital. But so this, but the Lochner court overturns that, that particular decision and a series of other laws, especially ones regulating child labor and, um, and, uh, uh maximum hour, uh, laws. And for instance, there's a, there's a law to, to, to abolish Again, this is a New York law to abolish uh, in the cigar making industry tenement workshops. You mm -hmm. can imagine these were fetid, really disease ridden yes. uh, places. And and uh, again, uh, and the and the and the, the law is passed against a New York law. They say you know it's a danger to the health and well being of these of these people. And the and the Lochner Court, uh, the the Supreme Court says no, they were free enter into this contract they did so and there's no reason to interfere with that uh with that liberty of contract absolutely amazing and you know we're talking about how the current court the current supreme court with the trump appointees is not so rare that there's a lot of precedent for that. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Steve Frazier, who's written, The Trump Supreme Court is nothing new, a history of the tyranny of the Supremes. And you know and I know, Steve, that there are a lot of people on the right these days who, would, who have that same sentiment that regulations are bad. It's smacks of communism. There should be no regulations whatsoever. And they yeah. see it as defending freedom. I find it fascinating when they talk about freedom. What they mean is freedom for the big corporations, the big banks, the big you know, industries to do whatever the heck they want without any yeah. restrictions or regulations. That's what they mean by freedom, pure and yeah. simple. It's amazing. Do you know that the day before, the day before... The Triangle Fire, that horrific 1911 fire, which killed 140 oh, God, uh, yeah. more than women. Yeah. The day before that, the New York Court of Appeals declared a um, law that had been passed in New York uh, uh, for workmen's compensation, quote, plainly revolutionary, and declared it uh, invalid. That's the day before this fire happens that kills all these women. Um, yeah, I mean... Uh, it's 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 astounding, and I mentioned this. One other thing I need to mention: the sure. other stunning thing 
is that the other weapon the court uses against the organization of workers, workers naturally begin to rebel. They organize. Yeah. There are strikes all <laughs> over the place, very bloody confrontations all over the country, the bloodiest in the Western world, very violent. The corporations have their own private armies, and they're able to call, call in state, local, and federal militias to put down strikes. Mm-hmm. This is very common throughout America. So the court's role in this is, is and that's why the court... The court earns a reputation for issuing what then were called Gatling gun injunctions. I don't know if your listeners will know what that means, but a Gatling gun was the early version of a machine gun. Um, and, and between, get this, uh, between 1880 and 1930, there are um, uh, 4,300 such labor injunctions issued against strikes and unions and secondary boycotts, which are movements by workers or, you know, either other unionists or just uh, ordinary consumers to boycott a struck corporation. These are called secondary boycotts. They're all declared unconstitutional by the Lochner Court. And the grounds, get the irony of this, the grounds for doing so, believe it or not, is the Sherman Antitrust Act. The Sherman Antitrust Act was passed in 1890. It's supposed to break up trusts, right? I mean, that's what it's ostensibly supposed to do. And occasionally, actually even did that, although pretty rarely. But what it was used by, but was by the Supreme Court, which said that these strikes and union efforts were conspiracies in restraint of trade, which is the language of the Sherman Antitrust Act. And so they used... The Sherman Antitrust Act to destroy the labor movement as best they could. Um, so uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty amazing. And you know, in 1914, uh, under the Wilson administration, there was passed a what's called the Clayton Act, um, and it was supposed to be an anti-injunction act. It was completely ignored by the Supreme Court all through the 20s, and they just issued injunction after injunction yeah. after injunction. Yeah, they do what they want. They they can be. Uh, yeah. and and some on the on the far right today still see the income tax as unconstitutional. And, and yeah, if, if tell me if I'm right, an earlier Supreme Court overturned the income tax. Tell yes, us, tell us income- please, what a dissenting justice said about yeah, that decision. Uh, uh, right. Um, um, it, 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 the an income tax is passed by the Congress in I forget exactly what year it's in the 1890s. Um, and the the, uh, the court overrules it again on the grounds that it's interfering with uh, private property. Sure. And one of the justices who's in dissent says it's a surrender to the moneyed classes. And of course, he's right. That's, yeah. that's, that, that's who's being that's who's being served. So there is no income tax until, of course, there's the constitutional amendment in 1913 to establish one. And that's the often the only way you, you can get around, and that's a tough road to go, to pass a constitutional amendment. Uh, then, then, then once that's done, the court can't mess with it. But, uh, you know, it takes a lot uh, a lot to do that. Now, what, the, what uh, speaking about modern day, you know, what, what Congress often has done um, is to pass laws that then override uh, Supreme Court decisions right. and hope that, which you know is being talked about now with respect to abortion. Right. Um, so uh, you know that's always another route. But the constitutional amendment route, which was used in the case of the direct election of senators and, and income tax, is a very uh, is a very tough 
tough road to go. It's very difficult to get a constitutional amendment yeah. through. But you know, there was a lot of opposition to this, and it became intense during the first part of the 20th century. I don't know if you want me to talk about that. but I, Yeah, sure. Um, you know, you get, not like that judge who said this is a surrender to the money classes, or the, or the, the judge I, I quoted before uh, about, the, about the, liberty, the so-called liberty of contract. You get um, uh, some of the most esteemed jurists in the country, like Oliver Wendell yes. Holmes, you know, saying, you know, you, you guys, this is in the Lochner decision itself. He says... Um, what you're trying to, to, to judicially decide and legislate is Herbert Spencer's um, law of... Herbert Spencer was the most famous proponent of what was in the 19th century called social Darwinism, which was an attempt to apply evolutionary theory to society and said, basically, society is organized just the way the biological world is. The fittest survive, and you shouldn't interfere with that right. because obviously we're all going to benefit if the fittest survive. Um, and uh, and and Holmes, Oliver Wendell Holmes said that you know actually that's not the way society operates, nor can it operate that way. And this this Lochner decision, which essentially is saying, hey, if the bakers can't survive under these uh, 75 to 100 hour work weeks, then they, they were meant to not survive. It's a, you know, this is the way the world is supposed to work. Even the social world, forget the biological world. So you have that. You have people like um, Teddy Roosevelt, for example, who mm-hmm. uh, in 1912, he's, he's the presidential candidate of what's called the Bull Moose or Progressive Party. Right. And it's supported by a lot of progressive reformers, Jane Addams, for example, and mm-hmm. others, who are also horrified by the Supreme Court, and he says, you know, in the end, the people decide. It's not the court. It's not a bunch of, you know, a small uh, coterie of, of uh, men who can do this. Uh, Eugene Debs, who's the uh, perennial Socialist Party candidate uh, for uh, president, um, uh, says that the court, uh, there are a lot, of, a lot of calls for reform that there should be no more life terms for the justices, that judges should be elected, that the Congress should have the power to recall justices who are felt to be in violation of the Constitution, uh, that, um, you know, you needn't fix the number of judges at nine. Uh, For example, during the first, I'd say, 60, 70 years of the court, the number of justices kept changing. There were first five, and then there there were eight I mean, even even numbers. Uh, it's not till 1869 that the number of justices is fixed at nine, and it's not fixed by law. It just has been like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could. You could yeah. And then, of course, you get uh, proposals. Um, uh, there was even a proposal that there be. I think Roosevelt proposed yes, this. Franklin Roosevelt uh, uh, to uh, to uh, have national referenda. Oh, on wow. on Supreme Court decisions of great moment, that, ref, that these referenda could overrule such decisions. Wow. So the, the, the sanctity of the court was not, you know, taken for granted by an increasingly outraged both working class and middle class population around the turn of the century. Um, and, but the court prevails, and it does right into the Roosevelt administration uh, during the new during the New Deal during the Depression, the New Deal, so that. This same Supreme Court, obviously some of the, some of the personnel have changed. It's a lot of years. Uh, some have died off. Still, it remains this conservative bastion, and it overrules again and again key pieces of New Deal recovery legislation. Most importantly, the National Recovery Act, which was the early 
principal way the Roosevelt regime hoped to revivify uh, industrial capitalism in America and get the country out of the Depression. They declare that unconstitutional. They declare large parts of the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which was a similar act aimed at agriculture, large parts of it are declared unconstitutional, on and on and on, um, until finally uh, uh, Roosevelt, after winning a huge landslide election in 1936, second to his second term, uh, comes up with this plan, which went nowhere, uh, was a political disaster, to pack the court. It's called the court packing right. scheme, where his, his idea, and this had actually been raised at earlier in earlier periods of time, was that, that the judges, that there should be a kind of age term limit, that once you got to be 70 and had served for at least 10 years, uh, and you weren't going to leave, uh, a new justice could be appointed, mm. uh, up to, a, I think, a maximum of six, I think, was the proposal. So, because he didn't know, he, he felt politically stymied by the court. Uh, its politics ran contra his own, and he needed a way out. But the, the court packing plan never went anywhere. It was, had tremendous opposition. And then very soon after, um, some of the judges... Uh, kind of aged out. One of the judges, uh, Owen Roberts, um, became more friendly to New Deal legislation, and by the late 30s, they were f- declaring constitutional things like the Social Security Act, and the Wagner Act, and so on, the Fair Labor Standards Act. So the whole complexion and tenor of the court changed. But why did it change is the important thing. And I think here, it's the enormous success of mass movements that put Roosevelt in power. Yeah, Roosevelt doesn't become Roosevelt would have won the election in 1932, but he wouldn't have been Roosevelt. He was he was Roosevelt because there's a mass industrial uprising all across the country, the most powerful moment of the labor movement. There are mass uprisings of of of, of uh, farmers being foreclosed all across the uh, Midwest and 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 the Great Plains. Uh, there are movements of the unemployed unemployed councils springing up all over the place. There are farmer labor parties forming in various states in in the country it's it's it, the whole tenor of the country is changing uh and and um roosevelt is wise enough or politically astute enough to respond to that and 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 the temper of the times has changed and the culture of the times has changed except with regard to race um and, and and one of the interesting things I mentioned in my article is that despite all the opposition to the Lochner Court during the turn of the 20th century and on into the 1920s, very little of it had to do with race. And there are there are many many reasons for that. It's a, partly it speaks to the kind of racial blindness or yeah. uh, willful blindness of the nation when it comes to questions of race. Partly I think it has to do with the fact that. Um, the, 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 the by the 1930s and 40s, you have a growing, powerful civil rights movement. It has no much of an effect on Roosevelt. He's too scared about losing the solid South to really do anything on behalf of civil rights. But the movement itself is growing. It becomes quite powerful during World War II when it, there's a, a threatened mass march on Washington to desegregate the military, to deny military contracts to employers who discriminate and so on. It's growing ever more 
uh, uh, powerful, uh, and and that begins to change the tenor of the time, so that by the time you get to the Warren Court's famous decision in 1954, yeah. you have a country that's much more culturally cosmopolitan, which has a civil, which has a powerful labor movement, which itself is pro-civil rights, um, and it, it means that the the balance of power in the country has shifted, and shifted enough for the Warren Court to, of course, make the famous decision to desegregate public schooling in Brown versus Board of Education and do all other, many other rulings to broaden civil liberties um, uh, in the country and to favor labor legislation and, and that kind of thing. But it takes that kind of sea change in the political chemistry of the country to have produced this this parenthesis, which is the Warren Court, you might call the Warren Court a parenthesis, and then we then we return to what is really the norm when we get yeah. the Rehnquist Court and now the court we have now. So the the current court is not the rogue court. It was the uh, uh, Warren Court that was the aberration, and it seems like there's this long history in the Supreme Court of them like leading the fight against democracy. But as you point out, mass movements make a difference. I, I had uh, Michael Kazin on the show oh, a few months ago. He's got a book, out, a new book out called What It Took to Win. And he talks about the absolutely essential uh, importance of mass movements to make yeah. politicians be able to do something. So the Warren Court, you know, they've been to the right for a long time. They've been against democracy for a long time. But they are not Always. And I, I wonder how possible it may be to, to make changes. I mean, there's the idea of adding members that doesn't seem to have any real support in, in the uh, U.S. Senate. They're afraid to do that. Imagine a senator being cowardly. What a concept. <laughs> uh, um, but there, there's the possibility of, of term limits. I don't favor term limits in general because who are we to tell uh, people in other states, they can't vote for who they want to. But may, I, there there are things people can do, I think, that may, you know, it hasn't always been. We can't, well, we could, I suppose, give up. But I'd Well, rather, the one thing that uh, uh, gives me hope, there are a lot of proposals around. Yeah. Term limits for the Supreme Court justices, expanding the number of justices, um, and so on. There are a lot of, a lot of uh, talk about things to do. What's current, and, and some of them have, you know, maybe greater possibilities than others. What's fundamentally hopeful to me is there hasn't been such a discussion in many, many, many uh -huh. decades. And, and for the first time, people are saying, well, what is this institution? Why do we treat it as if it were sacred? Hmm. Uh, what is it about nine, it used to be nine guys, now it's nine men and women, that right. um, make them so able to, 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 to enact judge-made law? What allows that? Why should we give them that kind of authority? You know, there's, there's an argument to be made on behalf of the court. That is what's called the counter-majoritarian argument. The counter-majoritarian argument derives from Madison. It says you've got to watch out sometimes for passionate majorities. Right. And that's true. The civil rights, you know, when Brown and the civil rights legislation is passed, after all, those are minority yes, rights that are yes. being protected against tyrannical majorities. Those are passionate white majorities that ran these states and passed those laws. 
So there's something to be said for that. But that, and it's it's ironic that they're using the same, the court was using the same 14th Amendment uh, that they had used back in the in the 1890s uh, to deny all kinds of regulatory legislation. But the point is that what I'm, like I say, what I'm encouraged by is the fact that people are, are pondering whether it's referenda, term limits, expanding the number of justices, uh, whatever the proposed solution may be, or passing federal laws that undo uh, Supreme Court decisions. Right. Uh, I think it's great because you haven't heard that kind of, you know, people say, oh, wow, look, you know, it's like a god. And, uh, but, but the court has become so obnoxious. Uh, to a lot of passionate majorities, whether they're women uh, or, 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 yeah, I mean, uh, or, 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 uh, large parts of the black population or whatever, you know, the court's anti-labor rulings have part of its business, uh, its, 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 its disposition, its, dispo, its, its uh, attitude about favoring big business over the last 25 years has been a series of anti-labor decisions. So you have the labor movement, Another passionate majority, or not literally a majority, but a passionate mass movement, um, and the coming together of all of that in, in the teeth of these really very, uh, I mean, dangerous, da- dangerous. Look at the climate decision to strip the EPA of its ability to control carbon emissions. I mean, who, what, 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 what minority? The fossil fuel industry is the minority they're protecting there. Um, so I'm encouraged by that. And the fact, you know, it, it's theoretically, uh, uh, you know, free from public opinion. It's, you know, it's not elected. So it's, you know, theoretically, they, they don't have to care about what the public thinks, but they do. And they do. all the polls currently show the Supreme Court is very unpopular. And you know what? Yes. And, that, and that, that matters. that's unusual. That matters. And it's very unusual because if you look back, you probably have to go back to the Lochner Court era to see a time when the court had fallen so steeply yeah. in public esteem. Good. So what, yeah. what can the average citizen do? They, you know, the, the, the powers that be want us to believe that we are without power and that we should just you know, surrender our power to the big... Well, there's so many things, but I guess right now what I would say is vote yeah. in, November, in, in, in November and elect uh, people who uh, are, are sane and not uh, kind of uh, moral tyrants, and um, and uh, that would be my initial recommendation. Yeah, we can do it. We are not without power, and we can learn from history. There is a lot yeah. to learn from history. It's fascinating that you know some people are really freaked out by this particular Supreme Court, but there's a long history that's been there for a while, and changes have been made. The people every now and then can do it. If people want to, you know, follow your stuff and, and read more of uh, your uh, assessments, uh, is there, what can you suggest people uh, look at? Well, uh, I've written a lot of Tom Dispatch uh, mm-hmm. pieces. This is the latest. So there's, if you go to Tom Dispatch and Google my name, you'll see a lot of essays like this one about a variety of subjects. And I've written quite a few books. So uh, one I would recommend is a book called Class Matters, um, the, the strange delusion of American. Um, anyway, they're, they're, I, I, you can Google my books. I would say Class Matters might be the most relevant uh-huh. piece of historical writing. And it's Fraser, F-R-A-S-E-R, because there's other ways yes, of spelling right. it, as you know. Hey, thank yep. you so much. Very, Thanks very informative, and uh, we, we can do something about it. Thanks so much, Steve Fraser.
Thank you. This is a public service.